first today. We'll have a full bulletin of the world news. Twenty years after the disappearance of Lord and Lady Greystoke in the mutiny off the coast of West Africa, the BBC has learned that their orphan son has been found. <coughs> Raised by answer point eight after the death of his parents, young Johnny Clayton was arrested by a French naval officer named Darno. Although absolute proof of his hereditary has not yet been provided to British authorities, the BBC has obtained fingerprints from a Paris police sergeant that seem to offer convincing evidence of this amazing tale of survival and triumph over nature. A spokesman for the current Lord Greystoke said that William Cecil Clayton is in America and unavailable for comment. Before the young ape man set sail himself for the former colonies, this BBC reporter caught up with him. Is it true, sir, that you are, in fact, the son of Lord Greystoke? My mother was an ape, and of course she couldn't tell me much about it. I never knew who my father was. But the fingerprints seem to prove you Greystoke. I'm waiting for my ship, sir. Good day. Ow! I am the bloody British hooligan, and this has been the BBC News. Dateline Jassoom is next on the Quiddly Wave Network. From the Chicago Bureau of the Barsoomian Blade. Dateline Jassoom. The Panthen Press Production. For fans of Edgar Rice Burroughs and Pulp Adventure, here's your host, Elmo. Hey Della, what's your favorite Burroughs book, by the way? I don't even know if computers read pulp fiction. I prefer books by Otis Albert Klein. Elmo? Elmo? Sorry folks. He always blows a circuit when I say things like that. Elmo? Elmo, I really like Barsoom. That telepathic spaceship in Swords of Mars is the bomb. This is Jerry Spanraff from Payless Park, Illinois. You are listening to Dateline Jassoon. I can't believe my own computer's favorite Pulp Fiction author is Otis Adelbert Klein. Well, maybe it's my own fault because I have been buying a couple of Klein books uh, recently, and I've read Swordsman of Mars and Outlaws of Mars, and right now I'm reading Jan of the Jungle, which is, of course, a Tarzan knockoff. And they're not too bad, but uh, certainly not up to to Burroughs standards by any means. Uh, but uh, recently, Joan Bledig provided me with a videotape of the 1994 Dum Dum convention in Atlanta. And Sam Moskowitz, who was a uh, noted fandom historian, uh, spoke about the supposed feud between Klein 
and Edgar Rice Burroughs, and I thought I'd let you listen in on that. Mr. Moskowitz, who passed away in 1997, was introduced by George McWhorter, publisher of the Burroughs Bulletin. I can not think of any uh, Burroughs convention I've ever been to where uh, the, our main speaker for tonight, Sam Two Moons Moskowitz, has not been very prominently, uh, if he's not there, he's referred to because he is one of the living legends of Burroughs fandom. He was the first man ever to anthologize Edgar Rice Burroughs in a short story collection. And he is a leading authority on science fiction and on fandom. And he's a writer and a lecturer and a great Burroughs fan. And without much further, well, I must tell one little anecdote. When I first talked to Sam, he says, you know, I, I have an electrolarynx and they like me to talk at science fiction conventions because I sound like I'm from outer space. <laughs> and I knew I was going to love this man. I knew I was going to love this man right away. And my admiration grows for him every time I hear him speak. And he's going to speak to us today about the marketing of Burroughs' story, Tarzan stories. Sam? Are you able to hear me? Yes. Um, um, back in 1968, I paid a visit to the Burroughs Estate in Tarzana, California, and uh, Albert Burroughs, who was then alive, gave me free access to his files. I spent two days going through just two drawers from a filing cabinet and I met, filled a notebook, 68 pages of notes. I used a lot of this material in my book, Under the Moons of Mars, and I've used more of it in three previous talks that I've given to the Burroughs Bibliophiles. However, now I'm presenting a sort of a sequel to my last talk, Edgar Rice Burroughs, in 1925 was called unceremoniously by Matthew White Jr., then the editor of Argosy All Story magazine. That is, science fiction was no longer wanted in Argosy All Story. He had submitted a novel called Weird Adventures on the Planet Mars, which would eventually appear as the mastermind of Mars and it was severely criticized in return. Therefore, for a period of some years, no Burroughs appeared in Arkansas Old Story magazine. But gradually, there was a reconciliation, and I'm going to tell you now how that reconciliation came about and what happened as a result of it. When Matthew White Jr. on the editorial staff of Argosy All Story Weekly 
Since its origination as gold in August and December 9, 1882, rejected way weird adventure on Mars, the original title of the mastermind of Mars, on November 27, 1925, it lit in the mind of Edgar Rice Burroughs the flame of a constantly burning if subdued rage. The the present vein you are writing in does not suit the Argosy, as did your Tarzan stories wrote white. We do not find them tense enough in action, rapid enough in action, gripping enough in situation. For this reason, and notwithstanding the fact that we took your last story, which was the Red Hawk, September the, the Red Hawk, September the 5th to the 19th, 1925, which was subject to the same observation. I am returning a weird adventure on Mars, thanking you for submitting it, and hoping when you have something that is strictly in line with the kind of story the Argosy requires, you will submit it to us. What goaded Burroughs was that they were so hungry for the Red Hawk, which is the last part of the Moon Maiden, that they had paid nearly six and a half cents a word for it, or $2,310 for 36,000 words, in an era when a journeyman Mulser had to settle for one and a quarter cent a word from the same company. And each submission from Burroughs had to be coaxed out of him by honey phrases from Bob Davis, the famed Muncie editor. Finally, there was a change in the editorship of Argosy All Story. Matthew White Jr. retired June 7, 1928 and was replaced by Archibald, Archibald Binder, a stocky, bald-headed man who shortly attempted a reapproachment with Burroughs. He wrote him August 17, 1928, inviting him back to the phone. Burroughs refused to reply. He wrote him again September 25, 1928, offering eight cents a word for a first look at his material. Even in a day of the folks in the 20s, that was a heady offer. Burroughs did not reply. Again, he wrote December 5th, 1928, making a flat offer for a tanner of Pellucidor novel he had learned via the grapevine that Burroughs might be writing. His offer was $6,000. This time Burroughs did reply, really unburdening himself. He recounted his bitter rejection by White of his Martian novel, totally unexpected and he felt unjustified. He explained that as a result, he was forced to sell the Gernsback at a loss, which was true. This time Bittner assured him that White was no longer with the company that he had assumed all his duties, and Burroughs could expect a fair shake. A few weeks later, Burroughs wrote again on January 7th, 1929, that 
Diamond Bender Road again on January 7, 1929. Ted Burrow's old friend Bob Davis was back in the office and he would receive a friendly reception. On the strength of this, Burroughs finished a fighting man on Mars, which he always claimed was prompted by Bender's urgings and mailed it in requesting 10 cents a word. Bender rejected it June 8, 1929, entirely because of the word rate. Feeling that the Mars series was not as popular as Tarzan, and therefore not worth the price. During Burroughs' absence from the pages of Argosy, Otis Saddleford Klein rose to the fore. Klein had been an early contributor to Weird Tales, and one of his stories there being reprinted in Amazing Stories, it was the malignant entity, June 1926, and he would be an infrequent contributor thereafter. He also wrote detective stories and college humor, but was best known as a literary agent working out of Chicago. Klein's breakthrough came with the Planet Apparel, published as a six-part serial in Argosy, beginning July 20th, 1929. The novel had an interesting history. Klein claimed to have begun work on it back in 1921, and his original title for it was Grandin of Terror. The protagonist was named Robert Elsmore Grandin. That, that's why the name was in the title. He first submitted it to Gernsback Science and Invention which was publishing two stories or installments of a novel every month and paying them the good rate of two cents a word. Gernsback rejected it because the method of traveling to Venus was the astral rejection, rejection, transferring intelligence from the individual on Earth to one on Venus. Later, he would accept the mastermind of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs with a similar device for space travel. Klein then tried Edwin Baird of the Weird Tales, who thought he had, who though he had bought shorter lengths by Klein previously, rejected this one because of the 90,000 word length. Finally got around to sending it to the most logical market. Argosy old story weekly, figuratively biting his tongue as he did so. Bob Davis, who was then actively working editorial at that time, told Klein while there was nothing wrong with the story, he had just bought a few weeks earlier another scientific romance of the planet Venus by Ralph Milne Farley which he serialized under the title of The Radio Man, beginning with the issue of June 28, 1924. The next step for Klein's novel was to A.C. McClurg, edited by the Chicago book publisher Joseph Bray. This time his timing was right, because Burroughs had just broken with Bray on the rights to his new titles. There was an opening Bray liked Klein's novel, but held out a condition. 
he would publish it unless it was first serialized in some magazine. Klein resubmitted it to Fittner at Argosy. Fittner knew he couldn't get Burroughs, so he bought it. Since he was aiming at the now evidently substantial science fiction reader market, which Gernsback had demonstrated with amazing stories, and which could produce 100,000 sales if mined correctly. The Planet of Peril by Klein was very popular in Argosy, fans now ranking him as second only to Burroughs in the art of the scientific romance. As promised, the clerk produced a book and art cover the same year, 1929, and Klein went on to work on its sequel, The Prince of Peril, Peril, which ran in Argosy in 6 March, beginning in the August 20th, 1930 issue, and the clerk followed this up with a hardcover edition in 1930. But what stung Burroughs the most was a Tarzan copying Jan of the Jungle, which Argosy serialized in six installments, beginning with the issue of April 18th, 1931. This had a white boy raised by a female chimpanzee growing up to be a veritable Tarzan and was competently done. Almost as though to rub it in, Klein had another rip-off novel, Damn Son of the Tiger, serialized in Weird Tales beginning in the June-July 1931 issue, whose variant on the Tarzan theme would be an infant raised by a giant tiger. Whether this story had been submitted elsewhere first is not known. It may have been an Argosy reject, but was welcome at Weird Tales, since that magazine was suffering so much from the depression that it had gone bi-monthly, and it is reported that Klein's novel, and one that followed Buccaneers of Venus helped save it. On August 24th, 1931, Cyril Ralph Rothman, Burroughs' secretary, wrote Don Moore, the new editor of Argosy, asking him if he would be interested in reading the Western, that damn dude. Moore replied on August 28, 1931, that he invited suggestions of regular Burroughs material, providing only that they are fantastics. For them, he could offer something interesting in the way of rates and express the thought that there was a cordial welcome for Burroughs material at his office. He was not, however, interested in that damn dude. On September 10th, 1931, he followed up with the information that he could use for six smart novels a year from Burroughs, providing they were fantastic. Rothman responded to this with a price schedule. It would be 10 cents a word for fantastic novels, 11 cents a word for Tarzan, and 10 cents a word for non-fantastic. Moore failed to reply to this offer. Evidently was a bit too steep for the depression period, though Argosy was doing remarkably well compared to the battering the other pulps were taking. Probably because it was an excellent value, top adventure authors with a high level of human interest, and 144 
pages were only 10 cents. Obviously, he did very well. Getting no interest for Othman, undoubtedly. On Burrow's advice, borrowed his sights and came up with a new offer. Burrows would accept 10 cents a word for everything except Tarzan. Tarzan would be... No, he would accept, I'm sorry, 7.5 cents a word for everything except Tarzan. Tarzan would be 10 cents a word, but non-exclusive, since Burrows was selling him regularly the Blue Book at top rates. Moore must buy, however, 150,000 to 200,000 words a year at those rates. Moore attempted to moderate the demands by claiming that he knew that Blue Book which was featuring Burroughs almost every issue at that time, including Tarzan, was down to only 118,000 copies a month in sales, to which Burroughs might have replied that since Blue Book was a 25-cent magazine, that was the equivalent to about 275,000 sales of a 10-cent magazine. Moore came up with a new suggestion, he would pay 10 cents a word for a single Tarzan novel as a test to see what it did for circulation. If it performed as well as Burroughs claimed, then they could proceed from there. Abruptly, Burroughs wrote that he was working on a Venus story, something he had previously considered but had given up when McClurg issued the Planet of Peril. Apparently, Klein's poaching on his Tarzan domain had gotten to him. He would counter with Venus. Don Moore received this announcement with some irritation, <clears throat> since he already had Klein writing quite successful Venus stories. He offered $6,500 for his 65,000-word Tarzan. Moore reminded Burroughs on October 19, 1931, that he would only pay the seven and a half cent rate for fantastic stories. Burroughs informed him a month later, November 19, 1931, that he had completed Pirates of Venus, its original title, by the way, first of a series of Venus stories at seven and a half cents a word. The story was swiftly forwarded. On November 27, 1931, Burroughs also sent an additional 2,000 words to round out the Venus story later. Moore responding on November 13, 1931, said he would like Burroughs to give priority to the writing of a Tarzan story because he wanted to run that first. On November 24, 1931, he wrote Burroughs that he had read the manuscript and wanted two changes. On page 30 of the manuscript, he wanted Carson Napier, the protagonist of the story, attacked by fantastic creatures other than Fargo after fleeing. Second, he wanted action mixed into the acquaintance with the tree people. Then occurred an incident of embarrassment for Moore. Otis Albert Klein submitted a novel with the same title as the one that he had just bought from Burroughs, The Pirates of Venus. 
Svensson's first two stories had been so popular, Klein felt it logical that he write a third. Now Moore was saddled with the onerous task of informing Klein that he could not use the novel because he already had one for Red Rice Burroughs with the same locale and even with the same title. <laughs> Klein changed the title of the novel to The Buccaneers of Venus and submitted it to Farnsworth Wright and Weird Tales. Wright was glad to get it. Having noted its circulation increase with the publication of Damn Son of Tiger and serialized it in six monthly installments beginning with the November 1932 issue of Weird Tales. Klein now asked Moore if he would be receptive to a novel of the same type of the Venus stories but laid on the planet Mars. This had previously been Burroughs' domain but he so far had not offered any more stories to Moore. So, the suggestion was approved by Moore, and Klein went speedily to work on a Mars story, which he titled as Swordsman of Stars. Too bad he thought that Edgar Iceborough Zero John Carter was also a master swordsman. City of Gold, and it was published in Argosy in six installments beginning with the issue of March 12, 1932. On July 27, 1932, Moore wrote Burroughs that Argosy had only gained one quarter as much circulation with the publication of this Tarzan novel than with the previous one, which was the Tarzan the Ant-Man, February 3rd, 1924. The sequel to Pirates of Venus titled Lost on Venus would be accepted 28, December 28, 1932, and Burroughs was paid $5,065 for it. So far, everyone had kept their agreement. Burroughs had produced one Tarzan and two Venus stories and had been paid his promised rate. The arrangement was to have been continued but then something happened which might have been foreseen. Klein had turned in the first Mars novel, The Swordsman of Mars, and it was serialized in six installments, starting with the issue of January 7, 1933, and concluding with the issue of February 11, 1933. On February 21, 1933, Ten days after the Klein serial concluded, Edgar Rice Burroughs sent Moore a letter unilaterally canceling his agreement to supply any more stories targeting. Well, I've put in a request for an interview with Guillermo del Toro the director of Hellboy, who is now working on a Tarzan project, uh, but I have not heard back from him. Uh, I suppose he's busy with other things, what with an Academy Award nomination and all. But uh, in the meantime, here's a short clip from an, uh, an appearance he made on the Jimmy Kimmel Show. 
Our next guest is a great director and a very interesting guy. He's the man responsible for the movies Hellboy, The Devil's Backbone, and the Oscar-nominated Pan's Labyrinth. Please say hello to Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Congratulations on the uh, very well-deserved Oscar nomination. Six of them. That's pretty impressive. And I heard that you're also, besides the sequel to Hellboy, you're going to be uh, re you're remaking or making over Tarzan. Yeah, the idea is to uh, try to do a version that, unlike any others, in the sense that Tarzan's uh, formative years growing through the jungle are incredibly tough and brutal, and they've never been portrayed. There's always this idyllic sense of the jungle being, uh, you know, like a Disney set, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I want to portray how, it, how this guy becomes the toughest animal in the jungle, and then Jane teaches him to be a human, and there's a, a beautiful scene between him and Jane where she says, if you want to be a human, there's one word you got to learn, no, <laughs> we all have gone through that. Guillermo del Toro, everybody, watch and root for him at the Academy Awards, the 79th annual on ABC here, February 25th. 5 Pacific, and of course, Hans Labyrinth in theaters now. We'll be right back with music from Tenacious D. Come on back. Like any Tarzan movie, this could really be cool or it could suck. Our experience has been that it will suck. But I like Guillermo del Toro's stuff, so I have high hopes, as always. My friend Steve Ryan, a frequent contributor to Dayline Jazzoom, has put together a new Trek tune called Agonizer, and I put together a little video to go along with it. You can find the link to Trek tunes on the front page of PantheonPress.com. Go check it out. That's it for show 28. I want to thank Lawrence Dunn, our intrepid BBC reporter, and Jerry Spanraft, who played Tarzan in our little opening clip. And I'd also like to thank Joan Bledig for supplying that uh, tape of the 1994 Dum Dum with the speaker, Sam Moskowitz. I'll talk to you in two weeks. This is Elmo from the Barsoomian Blade Bureau in Chicago, signing off. It lit in the mind of Edgar Rice Burroughs, the flame of a constantly burning, if subdued rage.